Breaking the Glass, Episode 6. When I got to the prosecutor's office, I didn't have to go far. The community came to me. I saw parents who's, who were shocked that their kid was doing heroin. I saw mothers and fathers who were shocked that their kid is involved in gun violence. A community came to the courtroom, and I saw that because the crimes already occurred. The victims already victimized. I cannot undo what's been done. I can't change it. And when I saw it, then I said, well, I've got to do something about it. And so instead of using the very best of me on the back end, I said, I got to get to the front. I looked to the front. I saw United Way. And it's been about three and a half years. Welcome to the Breaking the Glass show with TQ Sinkungu. Together, we'll dig inside the success stories of people of color and share those stories to inspire you. Then we'll break down their path to show you what they did so you can learn from their wisdom and follow in their footsteps. Welcome to episode six, Glassbreakers. I hope you're going to enjoy this one as much as I enjoyed recording it. But first, I want to thank you for the continued ratings and reviews on iTunes. Your ratings and reviews help me move up the rankings. That'll get me into the new and noteworthy section. I think if I get 50 reviews, I can make it there. And I especially want to thank Brendan, Tiki, and M Interview. Those are a couple of reviews I saw while I was looking through this past week. If you want to leave a review, just search iTunes or in Google for TQ Breaking the Glass. And it should be the first link that comes up and you'll see my podcast. Find me there. Leave a rating and review. And if it's five stars, even better. Now I have a new segment I want to start and I'm calling it Proud of My People. You see, I have the privilege to do long interviews with some pretty interesting people. But what I know is there are lots of folks out there who are also breaking the glass and you listening are proud of them. So what I want you to do is tell me about them and I'll share them on a segment on this show. So all you have to do is go to breakingtheglass.com. You'll see a little red button somewhere on the page that says send a voicemail. Just click it. Use your microphone. Leave your voicemail with the person you're proud of and why you're proud of them and what they're doing, and I'll feature them on one of my future episodes. See, you're already proud of them, and I, too, just want to be proud of my people. All those details, again, are at breakingtheglass.com. A quick note for you audio engineers and audiophiles like me out there, there's a little bit of a buzz that got onto this week's recording, so please forgive me if you hear it. Most of you won't even notice it, except for now that I mentioned it. But really, it's just going to fade into the background while you listen to this awesome conversation. And now on to this week's episode. I want to introduce you to Adeyinka Faletti. This is a great guy. Like me, he's an immigrant. He's from Nigeria. I'm from Uganda. We were both born out of the country and immigrated here with our families. And he is just a solid, nice guy. And he's also super smart and sharp. We actually went through the application process to the military academies together, except I went to the Air Force Academy and he turned in the wrong door and ended up at West Point. Now, actually, we've ran into each other a number of times besides that first chance meeting at the candidate fitness test. In fact, one time I traveled to an Air Force Army football game at West Point and we were sitting in the dining hall waiting for our room assignments and in walks Yinka Folletti. So we caught up once again, and I just knew from there, we knew we were destined to be friends for the long haul. He served in the Army, and our time when we graduated means that he served after 9-11. 
Then he got out of the military and got his law degree. A few friends of mine have said that having a law degree is a good preparation for many different careers. He himself worked as a lawyer in a private law firm for a number of years, and then he moved over to the other side where he was in a public sector working actually as a prosecutor. The nature of his job meant that he was going to put different criminals away. And after a while, he kind of felt like he wanted to do something sooner before they got in that position of him having to put the criminals away. So along came an awesome opportunity with the United Way. His efforts in the past year alone have raised over $75 million, that's in 2016, to help fund multiple, multiple efforts in and around his community. That's from the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts to shelters, and the list goes on. Yinka is doing big, good work, leading a great team to impact the city in St. Louis of over 3 million people in ways that will hopefully do more to keep kids from out of in front of lawyers like he used to be. And with that, I'd like to introduce you to Yinka Filetti. Welcome to the Breaking the Glass podcast. It's TQ here for another episode to talk to you about how uh, those of us as minorities, we have an opportunity to be people of color who achieve. We're here to tell those stories and tell, tell you how your story can be the same. I'm here today with Yinka Folletti, a friend of mine that we go back over 20 years, probably almost 25 years, uh, yeah. to when both of us were youngsters. So we're going to get into the discussion. Uh, but welcome to the show today, Yinka. Yeah, well, TQ, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So Yinka and I go way, way, way back. Both of us are military academy grads. I went to the Air Force Academy. He uh, turned in the wrong door and went to the West Point. <laughs> <laughs> and we actually met at the physical fitness test you take yeah. to get yeah. into the academy. And I um, had run into each other multiple times over the years and kept in loose yeah. connection, but are, but are retightening up that, that connection. And when I got to, ready to do this podcast, this is a guy I had to get on. Uh, to be part of the discussion. Yinka, he serves right now as a senior vice president at the United Way of Greater, Los, uh, Greater St. Louis. Um, he just leads a, a philanthropic donor and community services division. In his role, what he does is he directs the organization's efforts to build up workplace campaigns. He works on leadership giving. He does volunteer engagement. It's a huge job he does. Um, he raises millions of dollars every year, over $75 million in 2016. Um, and before that, he was practicing law in the private practice, as well as within the city of St. Louis. And he served after West Point in the Army. And we'll get into that discussion. He was actually a soldier who went to fight um, an operation enduring freedom in, in uh, the Iraqi desert. So we're going to get into all those details. He and his wife and beautiful children reside in St. Louis. The guy likes working out. You can tell he just put a shirt on today, so you can't tell all the, the buffness is there. But if he you can see the physique is as strong. Um, but he loves to use some of that wrestling with his kids and dance with his daughter and playing with his brand new 10 week old uh, daughter. So, Yinka, welcome to the call. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks for the introduction. I, one correction to what you said. You had everything spot on. I served in Kuwait, okay. not Iraq. OK, but otherwise all was on point. Awesome. Awesome. So, Yinka, um, why don't you, first of all, part of the podcast, we want people to know where we come from. A lot of us were not born with silver spoons in our mouth. So tell us a little bit about yeah. your background. Yeah, so you, you uh, teed it up a bit. So I was born in Nigeria, came to the States when I was seven, uh, but born in Lagos, Nigeria. And uh, I remember growing up, there was a, a gutter, in, an open gutter 
in front of my house. And uh, when I was about four uh, or, or four or five, somewhere in there, my cousin uh, fell in the gutter. And uh, so that's one of my earliest memories as a kid growing up in Nigeria. Wow. Did you get yeah. him, Did you help him out or did you leave him in there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I helped him out. Uh, I helped him out. And I think that we had to pump his stomach. I mean, he's fine now. In fact, I was just at his wedding uh, last month. Good. So he, he turned out all right. But you leave him but, yeah, in we the gutter. No, no. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't push him in. I didn't push okay. him in. Uh, he slipped in. He slipped in. Well, we're similar so, in that, man. I was born in Uganda. So we're immigrants to this country. And how was it like? Where did you end up in the States when you got here? What was it like growing up? Yeah, so the first place I came to was New York City. My uh, my family came piecemeal, and I, I think it's pretty common for immigrants. My dad got a visa. Uh, he came, and then my mom got a visa three years after him, and then she came, and then I got a visa, and then I came uh, four years after my mom got a visa. So I was seven when I met my dad. Oh, wow. For the first, yeah, and... Uh, and I was seven when I met my sisters, who were then three years old and two. They were born in New York City while I was still in Nigeria. Okay. And so I remember getting off the plane and extending my hand saying, my name is Yinka and I'm your brother. Wow. And that's how we met. Wow. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, we came actually yeah. to the country as refugees. So, um, you know, with the whole Idi Amin time. So my we came all at the same time, uh, first to London, then to the States. So and then we got into Pittsburgh and Dallas and where did you, did you guys stay in New York for a while or did you come out to somewhere? To, we met in Dallas. When did you get there? Yeah. So my dad was in New York for several years. He drove a, he was a taxi driver, but he didn't think it was a good place to raise a family. So I personally was in New York for maybe a year and a half. And then we moved to Virginia. And I think we were in Virginia for maybe one grade, two elementary school grades. And then but most of our, my time in the U.S. was in Florida and Texas, junior high school and in Florida and then high school in Texas. What kind of things do you remember when you're growing up that kind of are important markers that kind of made you who you are today? You know, I, I one one thing that, that stands out when we were when we lived in Florida, we lived in a small town called Palm Bay, sister city to a, a little slightly bigger city called Melbourne. And there was a there was a place called the Melbourne Causeway. People like to go fishing there and whatnot. And my dad and I used to go fishing, but we didn't go fishing like most people go fishing for fun with rods and it's kind of a leisurely pastime thing. We went fishing because we didn't have food. Mm. And, and so when my dad and I went fishing, we went fishing with a net and it was, I remember, I mean, it was like Forrest Gump, you know, we had like fried fish, boiled fish, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Fake fish. We had fish in all the different ways you could have it. Yeah. But that was our food. And that was the way my dad could provide for our family. Mm. I literally remember growing up in, in that th this one year of, of when we lived in Florida, we lived in public housing for one year mm. and one school year. And I remember uh, <laughs> I remember we had nothing in the fridge. We had government cheese. We had, uh, we used to eat syrup sandwiches, Wow! You know, you know, just, we used to eat cereal with, with water Yeah. because we didn't have, we didn't have milk. So those were, and I was the eldest kid. So I, I, I was old enough to know what was going on and those were tough times, but it, but it made me a stronger person and, and really even my sister is stronger as well. Yeah. Wow. Now I didn't know that. I think 
our family was kind of middle class. We didn't have it as difficult as you, but I do. We weren't rich by any stretch, so I knew in our house that meant education was important. Um, was that was that a big thing for you guys as well? It was huge. It was huge. It was so important. My dad was a <clears throat> was very keen on education. So we, when we lived in Florida, he saw this. Uh, it was like a twenty twenty or eight, you know, one of those shows. They highlighted this kid who lived in North Florida, and the kid was like 11 years old and in college, something like that. Wow. And my dad was like, well, my kid can do that. My kid is smart. So my dad actually began a search for a program that would take a kid years early into college. He looked like did a nationwide search, and he found a program in Texas called the Texas Academy of Math and Science mm. at the University Texas. Yeah. It's a, it's a, you've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember it. It's a two year early admission program. You leave high school after your sophomore year, you go to university of North Texas, you live in a special dorm, you're taking heavy math and science courses. At the end of the two years, you have your associates, you can stay and do two more years and have your bachelor's or you can transfer. And he found that program so that uh, I would have a shot at doing it did you go through it because i so that was i'll tell you i remember that program because i lived yeah. just in north texas and i remember yeah. i was a pretty good student and i was like but do i want to be in college this young or do i want to keep having fun and yeah. living high school life so i decided not to go yeah. through it did you did you go through that program i did i did but remember we lived in florida okay and so this is how this is how much my my dad this is kind of the, the import of the role he had in my life and all of our lives my dad believed in me so much. Remember, so to be eligible for this program, you had to be a Texas resident. Yeah. You had to have lived in a state for at least one year. Okay. We didn't, we lived in Florida. So my dad moved the entire family from Florida to Texas in anticipation that he just knew I was going to get in this program. Wow. No pressure, right? Right, right. Uh, thankfully, he didn't tell me that at the time, but we moved to Texas and I was, we were then eligible. I was eligible and I took the, te- the exam and the SAT and all that stuff and I got in the program. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. So you got college credit, obviously, and graduated high school. Um, it, what led you from there to, the, to go to a military academy? Why, why make that choice? Yeah, so I, you know, I'd heard of West Point just through history classes, et cetera, but I, I didn't, I didn't have any direct affiliation. Nobody in my family had even served in the military, so I wasn't looking at West Point. Actually, I was looking at Duke. Wow. You might remember uh, the days of uh, Grant Hill and Bobby Hurley and all those guys. I was a Georgetown I, fan. I hated Duke. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, this is perfect. This is perfect. This is why you went to the Air Force Academy. <laughs> but uh, so, you know, I, I wanted to go to Duke and I, you know, I was like five foot nothing. I thought I was going to walk on Coach K's right. know, basketball team. But I started getting information from West Point while I was at the Texas Academy of Math and Science. They they heard about this program and they started recruiting from this program. Yeah. And so that's when I really started reading more and learning more. And then I, I remember this one brochure I got, and it had this quote that I'll never forget. It said, much of the history we teach 
was made by the people we taught. Mm. And I was like, wow. And then the second one that really got me in and sealed the deal in conjunction with that first one for me to apply, it said something like, you know, every year, you know, 50,000 people attend the Ohio State University, something like that. And since 1893, I mean, 1803, only 50,000 people have ever graduated from West Point. Right. I was like, wow, that's pretty impressive. It's a select group. Yeah. That's really cool, man. So same thing, you know, well, for me, it was different because my sister, she went two years to the Air Force Academy before I did. She was she she was two years older than me. She went there a couple mm-hmm. years before me. I didn't know anything about these academies either. You read about them in class, but I thought it was just like, oh, this general, whatever. They learn how to shoot there and, you know, who, right, who, right. and then be army people, whatever that means. But yeah, my sister went before me. Then I went behind her because I think we were in like this lifelong achievement competition, at least up to that point. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but yeah, I wanted the same thing. I wanted to be part of an exclusive club. These are the toughest schools in the country to get into. Um, but when yeah. I got there... I was often just like I was in high school and in elementary school, often only person of color in my class. Um, Definitely only usually only the black, only black person in my class, except for swimming. The basic swimming class where nobody could swim. All the black people (laughs) were in that class. (laughs) It was all black people in that class. But uh, I I was there with I was just I was just a West Point. Exactly. Exactly. So but besides that. So what was it like being at at West Point? I mean, you obviously you graduated. Um, on the dean's list, um, you did really well there. What what kind of what was that experience like for you? You know, every day was a a challenge. Uh, you know, every day was intense. I I, I liken it to this quote that I heard. Uh, it, it goes something like, you know, every day in Africa, you know, uh, a lion wakes up and knows that for survival he's got to outrun, you know, the slowest gazelle. And every day a gazelle wakes up and knows that for survival. She's got to outrun the fastest line. And whether you're a lion or gazelle, every day you wake up, you better be running. Yeah. And, and that's what West Point was like. It was like every day you had to wake up running. I mean, not not literally in the, in the running sense, but figuratively in that you were going to be challenged to the max that day. It was an intense uh, program. There were times where, you know, I thought about, you know, hey, I could just I could quit now. You know, go and, see Coach and, K. Yeah, go see Coach K. I can still walk on, you know, but I'm I'm glad that I had the support of my dad and my mom and family and friends who and classmates who really helped me uh, do well and graduate. So the academies for people who don't know is uh, there is just like college in many ways where you go to classes, very academically rigorous school. If you're a top student, it's a place you want to be. Um, but some of the benefits are it's totally free to go. The taxpayer pays and you get a paycheck every month while you're there and you get a top notch, well-respected education. Um, I had some friends who who did leave while well, I went to the Air Force Academy. I graduated, but I had some friends who did leave, but went to other great schools. Other schools would add 0. 0.5 to their GPA because they came from the Air Force Academy. And I'm sure the same was true at West Point. But let's slow this down. We want people to know. Okay, if I want to go to school for free, if I want to be challenged, if I'm the top of my game academically, athletically, how do I get into a service academy? How does someone even do that and take advantage of all these benefits that exist there? So if you want to do the the, the basic version, how do you get into a service academy or at least West Point? Yeah, yeah I think <clears throat> I think it starts in in junior high. You know, I think 
at the junior high level, seventh, eighth, ninth grade, or middle school, you, that person is already taking ch- classes that will challenge them, you know, the math classes, the science classes. And they're not only focused on academics and doing well academically, but they're also ensuring that they're keeping themselves well-rounded by doing extracurriculars, whether it's band or student council or theater. Sports. Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, sports. And in those activities, they're able to show that they're leading. They're, they're leading their peers. And, uh, and then I, I think all of those things are, are the things that people want to start doing in, in seventh, eighth, ninth grade. Okay. And I'll tell you, for me, my dad gave me a book when I was in, I think, seventh grade that was called How to Get into the Top Colleges and Universities. And it just, he just went to the store. Same thing. Like your dad, my dad just was like, I'll find it in Barnes and Noble. You read this book and figure out how to get into a great school, foreign languages, good academics, try to be ahead in your mathematics classes. Leadership is important. Um, And then just for those who are interested, uh, the other part of it is getting a congressional appointment. So you got to talk to and be involved in the community. So your congressman or senator can help you get in there. But I, I, yeah. I want to be just to let people know the kinds of people who graduate from military academies. It's not a coincidence yeah. that they're CEOs, high powered entrepreneurs, executives at corporations, high levels of government. Numbers of presidents have been involved. And we'll put some of this information in the show notes to show you the impressive nature of the service academy graduates. You want to name some notable alumni? Other uh, people might might think, hey, I might want to be that type of a person. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they're they're. Uh, there, there all, uh, there's so many that people would know. I, I think, you know, most people would know of uh, General Norman Schwarzkopf, who was the a general in the in the first Gulf War. Uh, I think people, uh, you know, if you go further back, you know, generals, uh, you know, Pershing and General and President Eisenhower, and uh, those those folks, those leaders of, of yesteryear. But even more recently, the the CEO of of Seven Eleven is a West Point grad. Wow. I have a a classmate who is a senior executive at PepsiCo. It's pretty high up there. So you'll find West Point graduates and Academy graduates in all manner of of industry, particularly in business. You'll 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 see a lot of Academy graduates there, and you know many who are still are still serving. Yeah. So. Greg Popovich, who coaches the San Antonio Spurs, yeah. Air Force Academy grad. Um, yeah. There's a lot of folks. The guy Sully, who landed yeah. the plane on the uh, yeah. in in New York um, in yeah. the Hudson River. He's an Air Force Academy yeah. grad. The point is, is I, I'm just want to slow down a little bit here to say, people. Yeah. A lot of times, minority families don't want to send their kids to the military uh, because yeah. of some of the legacy of things like what happened in the Vietnam War um, yeah. or the discrimination that occurred in the past. But there's a great opportunity for you to leverage this chance to, especially if you, you are from a wealthy family, to get free school, top notch, and join a list of alumni that's, you know, some of the markers of society in the military and government and in business, whatever it is you want to do. And, and you're definitely an example yeah. of that. Yeah, I, I, I'll add my one of my favorite West Point graduates, and this goes back to Duke, is uh, Coach K. Yeah. Coach K is a West Point graduate and 
uh, I, I, I liked him even before then, but once I, I learned he was, you know, his success, <laughs> I really liked him and his success just made even more sense to me. I mean, just having that, that disciplined background, the work ethic, the leadership skills that he brings to his players. Right. It's Kay's philosophy, not to speak for him, but what I believe his philosophy is he's, he's making leaders who just happen to play basketball. Right. Right. Really well. Well, and, so and you and you got the chance and he got the chance to express that leadership actually in the military. So you got out mm-hmm. and you so I always say, man, I people like you were in the real military. I While I was in the military, if they if my I told my friends, if they call me to go fight somewhere, they have reached the last line of defense. <laughs> but but for you, you were actually driving tanks out there on the front line. So tell us about that kind of experience. Yeah, so I was a at, at Fort Hood, Texas. I was a my my first job in the army was a tank platoon leader, and so as a tank platoon leader, my job was to uh, was to train on tanks with fifteen other men, you know, all male unit at the time, on the M1A2 Abrams tank, and uh, trained to to fight for war. And so we would uh, we would be out in the field training for weeks and and uh, honing our craft, learning how to shoot and maneuver and communicate on the tank. So it was intense. It was a lot of fun, a lot of responsibility uh, for tanks and all the associate equipment and, and the lives of the, the men who were my charge. Now, you say so, you, you, you had groups, but how large were these these teams of men who you're responsible for and that you deployed with? How many people are we talking about? Well, so a, t- a tank, an individual tank has four crew members. I'm one of the, the crew members in a platoon. You've got four tanks. So you've got 16 men in a platoon. Then you have, uh, I'm part of a, a larger unit, a company of tanks. And then that company is part of a larger battalion. And a tank battalion could be anywhere from 500 to 600 soldiers, all told, uh, tanks and other other kinds of soldiers. So so it's a pretty, pretty large unit. And when you were deploying, you know, you you were leading over 800 people out to go, you know, be a warfighter. That's a pretty intense responsibility at 25, 26, 20, 24, 25, 26 years old. Yeah. So my job. So I deployed twice. So I deployed once to overseas, once to Kuwait before September 11. Wow. Came back in August of 01. Wow. And th- this was when Saddam Hussein was still in power, for those who might remember him. And we, the U.S. Army at the time, would send a unit over every four months or so. And we were trained and we were trained very, very loudly, very, very boisterously, very, very realistically so that Saddam would know, hey, don't try any mess. We're here. Mm. And so we did that, came back in August of 01, thinking that was a great deployment. We'll never, ever deploy to Kuwait again at that time. That was kind of like a once in a career kind of thing. It wasn't something. Uh, this was before the the army op tempo really quickened, and then 9/11 happened. And after 9/11, we deployed again in November of 01 and on, through March of 02. And so my job was what they called the battalion assistant S3, which is the battalion assistant planner. So my job was to write orders for the the unit so these six seven hundred men and women of the battalion and uh, orders that would direct how we trained and who did what when where 
and how we they were they were fueled and fed and and all of that. So so the orders I wrote were the language for what put our training into into action. Now, what did you? That that seems like an awesome responsibility. What kind of tools did you take away in terms of your leadership, in terms of your personal development? leading period, but also leading in that kind of environment where we didn't even know. It's hard to remember what September 11th was like, but we didn't, the world changed. What was yeah. it like? You being a leader literally on the front lines in that kind of experience. You know, I think it was, that was an intense time. That was particularly after 9-11. That was, we, every day I came to work and the other soldiers in my unit came to work. We have what we called our A and B bags. You're familiar. Those are that's your your two huge duffel bags that contain everything you would need in life when you deploy it overseas. Yeah. And so we had those two the A and B bag ready in our trunk, in the trunk of my car every day after nine. That's when you're and, stateside. You were, you were like that. Right. That was at Fort Hood, Texas. Yeah. And and every day I came to work, I knew that could be the day. That could be the day that I deployed to Kuwait. So we had to be ready. So it was pretty intense. And we ultimately deployed in November uh, after after 9-11. Uh, and when we deployed, it it was actually the best feeling. Hmm. Because you remember, I imagine you felt this way and so many others felt this way. We were so angry after 9-11. How could this happen? Who? And at the time, we didn't quite know who did it Yeah. at, at that time. Who did this? And how could they do this to us and kill so many innocent lives? And I was happy, and I and I believe so many other others of my comrades were happy that we could actually do something about it. Yeah. Very. Most people couldn't do anything about it. They could be angry, but there was no action they could take. And we were one of the few people in the country who could actually take action. Mm. And so that felt really, really good. What did you? So what? What did you learn personally? Like, what skills do you think you developed? as a leader in that environment? I think, uh, you know, just agility was, was one extreme agility, knowing that you came to work on a Monday that could be, you could be gone that day to Kuwait. Yeah. There, there was a lot of, so part of my job was, was to, uh, to coordinate the, the, the movement efforts for the whole task force. So part of my job in that time was to get every, human being that was part of that unit and all the equipment that we were taking to Kuwait, my job was to ensure that it properly got on the planes in the right way and landed in Kuwait safely. Make, so that, actually was make that real to me though. So I'm a regular guy. How am I going to use that yeah. in my real life? Well, the, so the, the ability to shoulder a, a huge amount of responsibility in a way that has to be sequenced for lots of other people and lots of other organizations, or if you think of it in civilian ways, lots of other companies yep. or, or groups. And, and you're sequencing all of that. And when something goes wrong, you're the person that they're calling to say, Hey, you know, what, what's wrong? Why, yeah. why is this not happening? Or uh, so that was a tremendous amount of responsibility and learning how to work through other people. So, Clearly, I couldn't do it for all six, seven, eight hundred people. Right. I had to work through other leaders at other units. I had to coordinate their actions. So, and they were my peers. I mean, I was a first lieutenant then, and they, some of them were first lieutenants, some were second lieutenants. So I had to coordinate their efforts and 
and leading your peers, as you know, is is the toughest kind of leadership. So often for the people who don't know what what military ranks are, that's you were like had one or two or maybe three years of experience leading all this equipment with a bunch of other people who are young and, and new to this. Like you, people think they see us and they think we have all this knowledge and experience. But what we have is just training and confidence. And um, you had to use that to kind of manage not just yourself and people who answer to you, but peers who didn't have to necessarily do what you said. So that's a big deal yeah. whenever you get to the business world or even in the nonprofit world as well. Absolutely. What um? Yeah. So you you what made you want to? Why didn't you stay in the military? Um, what made you get out and and, and move to being uh going into the law? Well, I uh, I actually didn't intend on leaving the military. I was actually enjoying my time. I I was having a lot of fun even through the deployments and I came back to Fort Hood and I was having good opportunities to, to increase my leadership skills and, and learn even more. And uh, I even, I had a, one of the opportunities I really wanted was company command. So company command, I, I got to do that at Fort Knox, Kentucky. I led a team of, of uh, 60 soldiers and led them in training thousands of soldiers every year and the basic skills that they needed to be able to, fight and win. What's important about was, getting company command? Why, why is that so important to you? Well, company command uh, in the army, at least is, is really is a defining leadership opportunity. So first of all, direct leadership of troops or people in the army is really coveted. It's not most of in a 20 year career. Most of an officer's time is not going to be leading people. It, it's a staff job of some sort. So, Working in a, Pushing in a non, yeah, yeah, and so to be, have the opportunity to lead people is coveted, and if you do it and do it well, it can open doors. And so I really wanted that opportunity. I didn't know if I was going to do a twenty-year career, but I wanted the opportunity to have that experience. And so, so I, I got that experience. I really wanted to go to law school, and I, but I wanted to go to law school then and not later, and. I think the army would have had me go later. So I, I got out with the intention of going back in the army. Yeah. And so that's what brought me to Washington university in St. Louis. Okay. What, why did you want to get into the law? Well, so when I was in Kuwait, uh, particularly the first deployment, when I, when I had a little bit more downtime at times there, I was starting to think during the first deployment, I think I'd been in the army about three and a half years. I was starting to look out at the horizon and saying, okay, Am I going to want to make this a 20 year career? How long do I want to be in? What do I want to do? And I started putting together, I actually like put it on paper yeah. and made like a matrix. You know, what am I, what do I, what am I good at? And, and what do I think I want to do? And I kind of married the two and it all started looking like a lawyer. Mm. And so I said, okay, I, I want to go to law school. Let me stop you and there for the, a second. I don't think, um, so, and, and it took me a while in my life to get to that point. You were smart and wise to do it early in your professional career. But people don't take the time to analyze those two questions. What am I good at and what do I like to do to figure out where they should go? Um, what was the benefit of that experience? I, I think people underestimate the benefit of taking the time to do that. How did that help you with your decision-making process? Well, it made it crystal clear. I mean, it, 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 once I, I went through that exercise, and again, this was over four months in the desert. So you, know, you have the benefit of 
less distractions, yeah. less background noise, a bit more clarity, a bit more focus. And when you're in the desert or on a deployment like that, life becomes very simple. It's about faith, family, and friends. Yeah. And everything else kind of falls away. And so in that context, I had a lot of clarity of mind. And when I did that exercise, it just it was it became very clear that being a lawyer was what I really wanted to do. Well, uh, so I'll also add I'll also add that I did at a later point see uh, the movie called The Firm. Yeah. With uh, uh, with uh, Tom Cruise. Yeah. And and so that I mean really that really helped too because I said you know what that's what I want to do. Well, a lot of a lot of um, parents. Uh, people of color say we got to be doctors and lawyers. So you lease it up one of the good, you know, archetypes of success in our yeah, community. Yeah. Um, and, but you went into private practice and then working uh, for in public service for the law. Tell me about what it was like working at your first law firm with uh, Brian Cave. So Brian Cave was a, was a terrific experience. I'm so glad that I had that experience. It was, it really taught me the business of law. Mm. So law school teaches you the kind of some of the mechanics and the, the, the stuff and, and it teaches you enough where you can, you, you learn how to learn. And so when you become a lawyer, you can, you can learn any particular area of law because you can't learn it all in the three years of law school. But being at the large law firm taught me how you, law firms actually monetize the legal expertise and knowledge of their lawyers. Now, let me, let me pause you for a second. Getting into the law, you know, first of all, you said you got to make money doing it. Was it hard to become a lawyer? Was it hard to get into that business? What does it, what does it take to go from whatever you were to, I perceive law school taking the LSAT and all that stuff is, and then getting into law school is actually kind of difficult. So was that a hard experience for you? Yeah. In a word, yeah, it, it was it was challenging. It was very challenging. And this is uh, on top of having graduated from West Point and served six years in active duty and deployments. I mean, law school is, is tough. And Washington University is, is a top law school. I was blessed to be able to get in. And uh, it's very rigorous. How top? Cool. How high are they ranked? Uh, it's it's consistently been in the top 20. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah. Country. And so. So the, the yeah the curriculum was 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 tough and uh, you know there was a lot of a lot of reading. I learned how to read faster in law school and I learned how to comprehend even more quickly and be able to recall even more quickly. But most importantly, I learned how to analyze and think logically and apply apply law to facts. Yeah, uh, and. And how to write really well. I mean, that's if you learn nothing else in law school, you're going to learn how to write. Yeah. And and we did a lot of writing, and I had a good, a great legal writing professor who really taught me and us how to write really well. Yeah. So, no, that's good. And and you said at Brian Cave that taught you how to monetize the law. What what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, uh, law firms are big business, and learning how to learning, understanding the business of law, understanding billing, how to do the work, but do the work in a way where the client is going to 
want to pay for the work. You know, doing work is one thing, but doing work that clients want to pay for is another. And so learning that, learning how to how to screen clients. Now, some clients aren't right for, for that firm, but maybe right for another firm. So just learning all those business aspects of it was was really key. How much diversity was there in law school and at Bryan Cave? You know, at Washington University has did and, and does continue to work on diversity efforts. And did your experience from a cultural perspective, did you ever face any discrimination due to your race? And did you have to overcome any certain things because of being a minority in that environment? You're saying in law school? Yep. Law school and at Brian Cave. I wouldn't say in law school. I think law school was a pretty, uh, I think it was pretty based on, on your work and your merit. I, I wouldn't say, as, and, and I think law schools are designed the way they're designed. The grading is blind, et cetera. So I think it's it's kind of harder to do that. But, you know, OK, so you were you were involved in the Black Law Students Association, right? Yes. Were there other people in that association that felt like they faced discrimination? Like, was that I, I a topic? Was that yeah. an issue? Did you guys think about it? Was it something that came up? I wouldn't say discrimination in law school. Once you're in the law school, I, I wouldn't say that that was a topic. I mean, we talked more about. How do we how do we succeed as minority students? Okay. Now there were other issues, so so that were specific to minority students, such as the fact that there weren't a lot of us. So that kind of support, having that building that support system for each other, was important. For example, one thing that's really important in law school is something called outlines. So outlines are essentially notes you know, outline structured notes from a course. Well, the way that works, the the way the knowledge transfer works is senior students pass it on to junior students. And you kind of keep passing along. And of course, you as a student will want to do your own outline, but you'll use an outline you've gotten from a senior student as a reference. Yep. And it helps you kind of check, okay, am I missing something? Or is there another perspective I haven't thought about? Well, for, for minority students who, who may not have that relationship with a more senior student or for a senior student who maybe they're not as comfortable with the minority or just doesn't know them, they may not pass their outlines on. Or as a minority student, you may not even know that these things, this opportunity even exists. Yeah. It, it, it's that just lack of knowledge yeah. as to what exists that people in a majority culture may know just because Maybe they had an uncle who went to law school or maybe their parents are lawyers or or whatever, where many minorities, maybe they were the first in their family to go to law school like I was. Yeah. And so I think we had more of those kinds of issues, more so than discrimination per se. And that's important. I think um, two things. One is people don't believe me when I say this, but I, I feel like in my life I've maybe faced discrimination like three or four times. Mm-hmm. Um, in life. And I don't know if it's because I just don't perceive it for what it is or my experience is just extremely unique. Um, but I mm-hmm. think the more, um, the, the more difficult thing to overcome is what you said, cultural de- uh, deficits that we have in the minority community where we just don't know certain things. And my hope is that, you know, a, uh, the po- a podcast like this will help bring some of those things out. So succeeding in law school, some of the association with other students is so together you can gain knowledge 
about the ways mm-hmm. to succeed in law school that you might that other people might get in majority cultures because of their history and their family and things like that. Sounds like what I hear you saying. Yes, absolutely. And TQ, I, I think there's, I think there's probably even more so than discrimination. Although I think that's very real, and I, I have experienced that. I think, uh, but I think what I've experienced even more, and what many people experience a lot, I think, is implicit bias. Yeah. Where, where the 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 doer of the action is not necessarily aware that they have an implicit bias that's affecting how they're dealing with this 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 person of color or minority yeah yeah do you feel like you so you said not at law school but maybe at brian cave what kind of things did you feel like you experienced there what kind of what kind of challenges did you have to overcome i think with with large law firms generally i think the challenge is one of the challenges, and this is not unique to Brian Cave for any large law firm is, is the recruitment, retention, promotion, retaining of lawyers of color, minority lawyers. And all big law firms are challenged with this. And part of it is, is relationships. So what, particularly in my role now as a fundraiser, Relationships are king, and at law firms, relationships are king. So for lawyers of color or lawyers in a minority who come into a law firm not having had the relationships with the partners who might be doling out, who are the ones doling out the work and providing the work, that's detrimental because where I say, uh, you know, Maybe their father went to school with that partner or there's some pre-existing relationship. So when that lawyer comes in the door, the partner is like, oh, I know your dad. I know your uncle or whatever. Oh, right. here, here, here's some, you know, and, and you, you get that, you, you get that, that, that chance. And for minority lawyers and lawyers of color, that's not necessarily the case. So I think, the relationships are, are, are huge and not having that is, is detrimental. Detrimental in, um, in, in what way? Well, so the way that any lawyer at any law firm, particularly large law firm, learns is, is by getting work and getting experience and getting variety of work. So in other words, not getting the same kind of projects over and over again and if you don't get that variety of work you don't get that that uh, frequency of work so being able to stay busy you know constantly you're not going to get the experience that will put you in a position to be promoted or to be retained or to be competitive for partnership when they're looking at people in your class of partnership. Did you have, were there anyone that, that could mentor you and get you past that process? Like, how did you persevere past those kind of challenges? Well, I did. So the firm did have a, a mentorship program, a formal mentorship program. So I did have a mentor who I connected with. Actually, I had two at the firm. One was another lawyer of color and one was was not. And both were great. And so they helped me to navigate 
the waters. You know, one thing I think is is not as clear to people is that for lawyers, for many lawyers of color and me, people like me, being at a large law firm, it's the first time that I've been in this environment. I mean, the first time I stepped in a law, in a law firm was when I was interviewing to work at a law firm. For a lot of, and I didn't even know this until classmates, not all, but many, their parents were lawyers, their uncles were lawyers, their aunts were lawyers, their They'd been in law firms. They'd been in, they'd stepped into the courtroom. They'd watched their uncle do a trial, whatever. And so for, for many lawyers of color, there's a steeper learning curve. Right. And so my having, my having access to the mentors I had was huge, was huge. It not only is, is it about the work at any law firm, but it's also about the politics. I mean, law firms are political places. Right. And and learning how to navigate the politics of a law firm, particularly large one, is not something that's inherent to, it doesn't come with getting a job. It, you have to have somebody invested in you who will help you navigate the politics and then who will be a sponsor. So one thing that I, I learned at the law firm, there's a difference between mentor and a sponsor. A mentor is going to help you and they're going to mentor you, et cetera. A sponsor is the person when those decisions are going to be made are being made about who's going to get to work with this client or on that trial or what have you. A sponsor is the person who's going to put their neck on the line and say, hey, you need to put Yinka on this case. You need he needs to get you need he needs to above everybody else be on this case. And so. So that's that's something that I learned was is hugely important. Were you able to get a sponsor, or did you have to kind of fend for yourself? I did actually. I did. I did have uh, a partner who who did become a sponsor for me, and so was able to ensure that I got on some important cases and were, was able to work with some clients of import to the firm, which gives that visibility that that I needed and anybody in the law any associated large law firm needs. So I, I was able to get that. Why did you move then from that to the circuit attorney's office? My, my move. So there, there are lots of factors. A large law firm is a working there means a particular kind of lifestyle. Yeah. And, and, and that's fine. As long as one is able to, one wants that lifestyle and is okay with that lifestyle. What kind of but lifestyle? Well, it's a it's a lifestyle that means your your priority in life is to the law firm, and and that's because law firms bill at high rates. Large law firms do. This one did at high rates, and when you bill a client at a, that kind of rate, they kind of think, okay, well, you know, if I want it today, I get it today. Yeah. And if I want it yesterday, then I, I should have darn well. I, I better have gotten it yesterday. And that means that the, your, your work kind of becomes, I think, first priority. And it's difficult, I think, to balance family, particularly as an associate with that kind of priority and work. So that's one. The other thing is is mission. So I came from an environment in the Army where I had a huge mission larger than life, deployed to Kuwait, you know, this is for the country kind of mission, to a law firm where 
I'm working for a, a client or clients, and it's a very narrow and specific mission. It's, there's nothing, you know, country about it. It's, right. it's about winning this case for this client. It's extremely important for the client. Lots of zeros on the line for the client, reputational risk, et cetera. But that, that's what it is. And so those are two different kinds of missions. And I missed the latter. I missed the big mission, the bigger, not so much about me, more about country, more about others' mission. And you found that there in the attorney's uh, assistant or attorney attorney's office? Yeah. So the circuit attorney's office, or some places they call it the district attorney's office, right? prosecutor's office, state prosecutor's office. Uh, that work was incredible. Being able to fight for victims of crime, people whose homes have been burglarized. I mean, imagine the sanctity of the safety of one's home being broken by a burglar or someone whose kids was being used to push drugs or mm. people who were victims of assault, people who were victims of gun violence. That was incredible work. You want to tell, uh, like, what's, what's one gratifying story you had there? Well... I, I don't even, I mean, I, I, there are so many. I, I'll, I'll single out this one. My first jury trial was a, uh, a prosecuting a, a teacher who was showing pornography to an 11-year-old boy in the classroom wow. on his cell phone. And this 11-year-old boy and another, and another boy. And... This some 11-year-old boys are 11 going on 17. Yeah. This boy was 11 going on 11. I mean, he really was an 11-year-old boy. And to have the sanctity of his childhood broken by this teacher in that way was incredible. And somebody the, the parents are supposed to trust with their child. So that was my first jury trial. Mm. And thankfully, I had great support staff, great investigators, great team. I was able to get a conviction on that case. Mm. And the thank you that came from those parents is a thank you that will stay with me for life because nothing could be undone. What had been done was done. What had been seen was seen. But for the parents and the victim, the boy, to get that justice meant everything. And to be part of that, to have led that work, I mean, that's tops. And so I'm so glad I was able to have that experience. That's a a serious uh, fulfilling of a mission. I wonder what I think about. I have a friend who's actually an assistant DA out here in Los Angeles. And sometimes I wonder about the, the feeling at the same time, like, you may have to prosecute a lot of cases in communities of color. Did you have any, any dissonance, any difficulty dealing with seeing those kind of challenges in that community or how did that piece of it hit you? If it did at all, it did. There's a a docket in a court every morning where anybody who committed a, a felony the day prior or that week, they would be brought into the courtroom the the morning of and the next day and told of the charges against them. And they would have an opportunity to 
plead guilty, not guilty, or whatever. They, they could enter their plea at the time. And every morning, I would see in orange jumpsuits, bound by chain one to another, black men. Yeah. And it was a black man bound by chain to another black man bound by chain to another black man bound by chain to another black man, and so on. And seeing that every morning for certain weeks of the month, it it was it was heart wrenching, and it conjured up the image of slavery. Quite frankly, yeah. When black men were bound by chain and being sold at, on the auction block, and so that was tough because I knew that that person was going to be prosecuted and whether I handled the case or some other prosecutor handled the case, you know, there was a good chance they were going to be convicted if the state did, if the state was right, that right. They, and the state proved our case. And so, yeah, these were brothers in the community. So that was, that was tough. That was tough. How did you deal with that? Like what, what did it do to you? What did it move you to do? Well, that's actually what propelled me to come work for United Way. Okay, let's hear about that. So in seeing this, and there was a particular case that I prosecuted a guy in 2013, or correction, 2011. And then in 2013, and in, and in 2011, got the conviction, the guy got probation. He picked up another case right back in front of the court, right back in front of the same prosecutor, me, in, mm. in 2013. Wow. Talk about unlucky. And I thought to myself, I'm using the very best of me. I mean, trial work is a lot of work, a lot of Sunday nights, Sunday evenings, Sunday weekends, preparing for trial, working up the case, preparing the witnesses, gathering the evidence, and opening statements and closing argument, all of it, cross-examination, all of it, a lot of work. And I'm using this tremendous amount of energy, sacrificing time with family, etc. On the back end, because the crimes already occurred, the victims already victimized. I cannot undo what's been done. I can't change it. Yeah. I can give the victim a sense of justice, which I loved, but I couldn't undo it. And I thought, what if instead of using the very best of me in the back end, I use the front end? Because before that young man, typically it was men in, in the cases I saw, before he was 20 burglarizing or assaulting, he was 17, he was 13, he was nine, he was five. Like my son is, and when he's five, if we'd invested early child education, making sure he's in a safe environment, good health, mentorship, all of those things. When he's 20, he's, he's graduating, about to graduate college. He's starting a company. He's getting ready to go to grad school or thinking about grad school. Right. He's not burglarizing. And when I saw it, when I saw the problems, when I was at Brian Cave, 
I was in an ivory tower. I worked a lot of hours in a beautiful building with people who were like me from a socioeconomic standpoint. I didn't see a whole lot else. I, I was immersed in the firm bubble. When I got to the prosecutor's office, I didn't have to go far. The community came to me. I saw parents who's, who were shocked that their kid was doing heroin. Yeah. I saw mothers and fathers who were shocked that their kid is involved in gun violence. A community came to the courtroom, and I saw that. And when I saw it, then I said, well, I've got to do something about it. And so instead of using the very best of me on the back end, I said, I got to get to the front. I looked to the front. I saw United Way. And it's been about three and a half years. Yeah. So t- tell us about what the United Way does. People have seen maybe the commercials or, or things like that. But what does United Way do? United Way of Greater St. Louis and the over 1,100 other chapters in the country exist to essentially do one thing, help people live their best possible lives. And that's solving for homelessness, joblessness, lack of economic opportunity, education, financial stability, health, and so on. That's what we do. And so my job is to help people live measurably better lives in this greater St. Louis region. We do that by investing and funding a member of a system of United Way agencies who do that work. Some you know, some are very well known, like Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, Salvation Army, Goodwill, you know, big ones like that. And then little ones, like one here locally called Mary Ryder Home, which is an agency that helps elderly women who would have no place to go have a safe, healthy place to live and help solve problems for families who are wondering, what do I do with my grandmother who needs a place to live, a safe place to live, needs healthcare or certain has certain needs. So all manner of agencies like that. We fund non-United Way member agencies who are doing great work, but they aren't necessarily part of the, the United Way member agency system. We, in addition of funding agencies, we fund large community initiatives. You know, in our region, there are two twin efforts on Ready by 21, one called East Side Align. They're collective impact efforts that bring together for-profit, government, nonprofit, private citizens, corporations, local government to work together to agree on a common set of metrics for our children from age zero to 21 mm. and work to achieve those metrics. And that sounds simple, but it's it's hard work. No, it doesn't sound simple to me. That sounds like <laughs> an intense, wide-ranging project because what are the metrics? Who does the measuring? What's good yeah. and bad? That That's a lot of work. What's the impact you're trying to have with that particular effort? Well, the, the impact is that from age zero to 21, kids have a, an opportunity, the best opportunity to learn, the best opportunity to be healthy, the best opportunity to grow and the best opportunity to succeed in life. So that's taken all of the wraparound services that children need to, to succeed and ensuring that they're coordinated, um, they're, they're smart, they're, they're targeted, they're aimed, they're not duplicative, they're, they're actually working, they're actually helping the kids and not hurting the kids, and that agencies are talking to each other 
it's it's doing all of those things and and coordinating the efforts so that everybody's in agreement clergy nonprofit government for profit corporations, they're all in agreement on what it is we're trying to achieve for our children. And driving funding, changing policies, practice, practices, and procedures to, to, to aim to, to direct them at, at, those, at those aims. So you, like, let me see if I understand. The United Way, it feels like it's almost in the name that the, the and I don't know this, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but the United Way, the purpose of it is not necessarily in itself to do the work that needs to be done, but to unite other organizations that are doing the work in the local community to get services to people who need them so they can succeed in their lives. Is that, am I, is that right? Yeah, that's spot on. It is in the name. It is united and bringing, creating the platform for community coming together and, and, one of our biggest audiences are partners, corporate partners. So we, we tend to have the ear of the corporate community in our, in our locales and bring in their resources to bear on the problems in society, uh, in community. So you're not, and you're also, you're not just serving soup at the soup kitchen either. You're a senior vice president. Uh, you're in charge of donor and community services. Uh, you've raised over $75 million uh, last year and engaged tens of thousands, over 87,000 volunteers in community services. And um, and those people, if they were to get paid, would get paid over $12 million worth of work to do. So it's not a small, and, and you're a significant piece of being responsible for this as a person of color. I think I say that because um, there are ways in which you have particular skills if you have those skills like you've developed in the military, being an attorney, uh, going to a military academy that, you know, you can serve on a level that has broad reaching impact across not just your local community, but across larger swaths of, of the environment. So I, I, I don't I don't think I even would have thought about that as an opportunity of something to do. So that's that's pretty impressive in terms of where you are and what you're doing there. Well, if I did all of that by myself, it, it, I'd be walking on water. So, so fortunately, <laughs> I, I have a, I have a team. You know, I think I, I'm blessed that I have a great team of people I work with. And so, when we raised that 75 million last year, that was all of us working together. We have great volunteer leadership in the community. In this region, we had a the CEO of the of a large healthcare network in the region and and CEO of a financial institution here, they paired up together and they were the, the ch- chairman of our community-wide campaign last year. So every year we're fortunate to have great leadership from, from volunteers, volunteer leaders in the, in the region. So that makes a big difference. You know, I think ultimately for me, getting involved with United Way was, was about seeing the problem and wanting to do something about it. Yeah. And then really going back to that matrix I made back, you know, when I was in Kuwait in the army and, and going back to, you know, every, what I'm about is helping people and what resonates with me. My truest self is about helping people. Right. 
And whether I'm helping people by winning jury trials in a courtroom, I'm helping people by helping to solve for the needs that they have, the health and human services needs. It's still helping. People. Let me let me ask you this. You are helping people and I and you're a humble guy. So you're going to say it's not meets everybody else. And it's true. It takes all their help. Um, what I what I want to know is what what kind of things have you taken from your past experience to be effective at? So, so how big is St. Louis, the, the metro area that you're that you're serving? It, it's about. Three million people, the greater St. Louis region. So the, the the region to serve some three million people, some s- segment of the three million people with hundreds of thousands of donors, tens of thousands of volunteers um, and, and leading that effort, although you have a lot of help. What are some of the key um, skills that you have to employ and, and th- to be able to be successful? The number one skill in my role, in, in the role that I have now, is leadership. And whether it's leadership when I was a tank platoon leader of 15 men and four tanks, or leadership when I was a company commander of you know, 50-something men, it's, it's leadership. It's about working together, leading people to do a difficult mission under austere conditions. So we, we agree. I'm a leadership, you know, um, evangelist myself. When you say leadership though, what's like, what's, what's your top leadership challenge that you have to solve on a regular basis? You know, I, I think leadership to me, I'm, I'm a people focused leader. So I, my leadership lens is, you know, you have, you have systems, you have processes, and those are important. You've got to you've got to have good systems and good processes in any organization. But all of that begins with people, and I think sometimes people get forgotten. And I learned that in the army. We had M182 Abrams tanks. We had night vision goggles. We had Apache helicopters. We had all kinds of missiles and smart weapons. I mean, just incredible machines. But it was the people who made all that stuff work and run. And so I bring that to United Way. You know, we've got this incredible mission. We have great volunteers, et cetera. But it's the individual people in my division that I've got to focus on day to day to day. Because when I focus on the people, the mission gets done. And so that's been a big help for me is to ensure that I'm, I'm people focused and, and of course, also processes and, and, and procedures, but also but focusing on the people has been, I think, the biggest key to any success I've been able to have in this world. What's one key thing in terms of people? Um, what's one what's what's one key thing that you think is a skill that everyone needs who wants to be a leader in an environment like you have? Listening. The, the number one skill, if you talk to any trial lawyer who's worth their law degree, a good trial lawyer, the number one skill they will tell you to be a good trial lawyer is listening. And that was one thing that I learned in my my third year of law school through my work on the trial team, which was led by Judge Mason here in our community. And 
listening and trying the case that's in front of you, not the case that you prepared for. And I take that to you not away. So listening to my people, listening to feedback from our donors, mm. listening to feedback from our corporate partners, listening to our community, listening. And when we're able to listen, we're able to do so much more. And I hear, I, I, I guess it, you might agree that it's, it's listening. And when you listen, you have to respond to what you hear. Like you said, try the case that's in front of you. You can't be so filled with your own ideas that you ignore the stuff that's right in front of your eyes. Correct. Agreed. Have you had any mentors um, that have helped you besides the the sponsor you mentioned um, at Brian Cave? Have you had any other mentors that have helped you get to where you are? Yeah, lots. I think my first mentor was my dad. Yeah. My dad, and still is, my dad instrumental in pushing me and my sisters to be the very best, to be better than we thought we could be. And quite frankly, my dad believed in me more than I believed in myself. Mm. And that was key to everything from me applying to the Texas Academy of Math and Science, to West Point, to law school, all of that. And then after my dad, there's a there are two others that are probably lesser mentors, but the, the, the moment of mentorship made a lifetime of difference. One is Lieutenant Colonel Hughes, who was a, I believe he was a professor or he was a staff at West Point. And he may not even remember he said this. But when we were getting ready to depart, or what, at some point in my time as a cadet, he said, when you get to the Army, take the hard jobs. And it was just a, very short sentence, but with packed with so much weight, because when I did get to the Army, I remember that, and taking the hard jobs has given me the, the better experience, the, the more richer experience, the tougher experience that has prepared me for the next level. And so that's one. A, a third mentor that it was kind of just, again, just one sentence, but made a lifetime of difference. My best friend's mom who lives, she lives in Atlanta. She, when my best friend and I, we both served first at Fort Hood together. So I think we'd gone home to his home in Atlanta, like on a break or something. And his mom was having a conversation with both of us. I actually, I think this was before, right before we went to Fort Hood. And she asked me, well, where are you going to live when you get to Fort Hood? Yeah. I said, oh, you know, I'll, I'll get an apartment, you know, something like that. And she said, well, why would you get an apartment? I said, well, you know, because that's what you do. You, when you live somewhere, you get an apartment. She said, well, why don't you buy a house? And I said, well, you know, I'm 21 or 22. I said, well, I'm like 22. I mean, you don't buy a house when you're 22. And quite frankly, I never had envisioned myself buying a house. Yeah. But she changed my way of thinking. And she opened my mind to a new possibility, a bigger possibility, a better possibility. And so when I got to Fort Hood, I bought a house and it spurred a lifetime of buying houses. Uh, this is more to her credit than mine. I have never rented in yeah. my life. To this day, I've never rented. And but for her saying that, 
I may have never bought a house to this day hmm. or I may not have bought a house till much later in my life. And I would have missed out on years and years of opportunity. So those three people together really stand out for me. And that's not a small thing. I mean, I think part of it, if you read a Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote the case for reparations, um, I believe in the Atlantic. And one of the things he mentioned in terms of the reason why there's a wealth gap so large between at least the black community in America and other communities is because there's not the same level of home ownership and not having an access to uh, whether it's the GI Bill or FHA loans or any of those kind of things. There's a certain amount of wealth you can build. And wealth doesn't mean necessarily driving a, a fancy car or taking crazy vacations or having nice clothes. It means having the ability to live the lifestyle that you would want to. A large way to, to develop and grow wealth in this country is by owning a home. So what you said mm-hmm. is it seems small, but it's a big thing. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, you know, it, it's yeah, there's a difference between wealth and income and and wealth is is the key determinant to being able to help future generations. Yeah. Yeah. And having small kids, I'm sure that's always on your mind like it is for me. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Is there any one uh, or two or three books that you'd recommend that somebody read um, if you were going to give them to somebody as a gift? What, what, what two, three books would you recommend for somebody to read? Well, I'll give them the Bible. Yeah. Well, first, I'll give them the Bible first. That, that book, as a Christian, I'm a man of faith. And I think that has been the book that's most guided my life or that I've at least aimed to guide my life. Yeah. Two, I'll give them Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. Okay. I, that book really opened my eyes to the, the system of mass incarceration in this country and the systemic constructs that continue to create a pipeline to prison for many young men of color. And then three, a tree, a book called The Giving Tree. Hmm. Have you heard of that one? I've heard of it. I never read it though. It's a, it's a, it's a children's book and it's, it's, it's a sad book. Actually, it's not a happy book. And every time I read it to my kids, I'm like, why is this a children's book? This is the most depressing <laughs> book, but, but it's actually a really good book because it's akin to the song 100 years to live by, I think five for fighting is the name of the, the music group. Or yeah. The, the, and you've heard that song. 100 years to live. I, you have to sing it to me. I don't I don't know off the top of my head. You don't want me to sing, bro. <laughs> okay, we'll put a link to it on the show notes. <laughs> but I love I love that song and I tie this book in with, with that song. I think they're parallel, but what the book does is it really shows you that life is really short. Yeah. And that you know, one, you shouldn't delay things that if you think you want to do something, you should and you've, you know, thought about it and prepared, you should do it. Because time goes very, very fast. And that, too, life is really precious. And so that book does that in a way that kids can understand, but adults definitely get when they read that, ki- that book to their kids. Right. So I think, I think that's the third book I would, I would give to someone. Very nice. 
Do you, so is there anybody, if someone was trying to learn, right, we're, we're trying to, we've given a lot of good resources here about how to get into law school, some of those, a little bit of that, how to get into a military academy. Um, but if someone wants to have, a, like you are right now, a large impact on their community through the United Way or through community service um, or learn some of the things that inspire you, do you have any blogs you follow, any social media that you look at? Or any resources you'd recommend for them to to get into? Well, I I don't I'm not a, a blog kind of person. I don't do a lot of blogs. I I uh, I do I, I listen to a lot of NPR, and so they're NPR blogs, but not the kind you're talking about. But I, I think no anything any resource for information is is good for me. You 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 choose. Don't don't narrow it. Okay, I I think. If they want to, if people want to get involved in their community and, and want to become significant in the lives of other people, I would encourage them to find their local United Way and go on their website. For our United Way, it's helpingpeople.org. And people can volunteer in any manner, in any zip code in our region, any activity, etc. And when people begin to to volunteer and they be, begin to make themselves significant in the lives of other people, they really, they really begin to, to gain. You know, there's a Chinese proverb that says, giving is gaining. And I, I think that's true. Volunteering and giving to other people is a tremendous benefit to the people you're helping, but you actually also get something back too. So I, that's, where our, that's where I'd point people to, their local United Way. Indeed. And um, and we'll close it out with something light. Is there what kind of things do you do for fun um, aside from playing with your kids? I'm sure. What type of stuff do you <laughs> like to do for fun? Well, if I, I tell you, I go back to that Coach K. I'm telling you, I, I still love basketball. So okay. I play I play basketball usually two, three times a month and uh, played last week. And I love that is my number one pastime. Love basketball. Uh if I were tall enough and good enough, I think I'd do that for a living. <laughs> right. And young enough. <laughs> and young enough. Yes. Young enough. I think I'm past my prime there. Uh, but, but yeah, basketball is a big thing. I love to, I, I love to keep up on current events. So I, I read a lot of NPR, listen to a lot of NPR. Uh, so th- those two things are, are things that I do for fun. Awesome, man. Well, I um, if people besides helping people.org, where can people find out about you where can they find you online if you want them to? And well, uh, I have a, go yeah, for it. I have a LinkedIn profile, so people can give me a shout there. I'm I'm happy to connect to people and and help them in any way that I'm able to. on just through LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, Yinka, man, it's been great having this conversation with you. Um, I'm looking forward to people being inspired to see how they can. Start from uh, being in the military and serving that way to serving all the way up in the community like you are or from whatever place they want to start to be in the, op- in the position to, to give back and also see that there are areas where you can serve and where you can lead and where you can be a positive influence uh, being a person of color. So thank you, man, for the time in this conversation today. TQ, thanks for the opportunity, man. Again, I think what you're doing is great. I hope that this gets to people and they they hear it and it it makes an impact in their lives all right man thank you so much all right brother